The scripture today is the third chapter of the book of Job. I will give you the page number in a moment. Uh, for now, I would encourage you to just listen. Job 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray together before we come to this passage. Father in heaven, we come uh, to this passage um, knowing uh, that we can address you, Jesus, uh, as a man full of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We know that we can come to this passage and see Job full of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And, and we come into your presence today bearing griefs of our own. Griefs that we share collectively, uh, griefs that we share individually, some that bind us together and others which make us feel isolated and alone. Um, Father, everything that we have done to this point uh, in the service has spoken of the ways that you pursue us, that you take the initiative to call us into your presence 
to extend forgiveness to us that would move us towards repentance, that would move us toward generosity. Um, as we come before your word, I pray that every person here would, would feel, uh, would know uh, you as a God who is pursuing them, uh, a God who um, has purposed to dwell in the midst of his people, uh, a God who has purposed um, for a people to be united to him uh, in the very flesh uh, of our crucified and buried and risen and ascended Savior. Uh, Father, we are here to worship him. Uh, we are here to worship you. Uh, we are here to bear before you uh, those griefs, those troubles uh, that we cannot bear on our own. Um, we are here to give you thanks for the ways that you have blessed us. Uh, we are here to ask for your help in those things which stretch out before us in the week ahead. But as Bradley reminded us, we are here to begin our week. We are here to begin uh, a new week in your presence, uh, resting in you uh, and in your son uh, and in the word that you have spoken to us and in the meal that you have laid before us. Father, we give you thanks. Uh, that, that's, that that's how you have commanded us to begin uh, our week, that it's not a reward stored up for us at the end, uh, but it is your gift uh, given without any merit of our own uh, because of how gracious you are. Fathers, we come to this weighty passage. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Job 3 is on page 418 uh, in, those, in those blue uh, pew Bibles. Um, it is clearly a, a weighty passage, but it is one that is, um, it's good that it's here. Um, you know, the, the, uh, when I said, this is the word of the Lord, and you said, thanks be to God, that was a little bit more muted. Uh, than it often is, and that's, that's understandable. Um, there are passages that stop us like that, where you kind of, it, it's hard to say the words, thanks be to God. Um, but what I want us to see today is how we can give thanks that this passage is here. Um, that it can remind us that in the midst of suffering uh, and grief and pain, uh, we are not alone. Uh, we are seen, we are known, uh, we are remembered. Uh, and ultimately, uh, we are joined to the Son of God. Um, that's what I want us to look at. Let me get us a little bit caught up on just set up the scene for you. We skipped over the very end of chapter 2 when Job's friends show up. And, and next week, Bradley is going to be preaching about those, those friends and what they have to say. Um, but what are they doing? Um, there's a movie... Um, uh, with uh, Ryan Gosling as, as the star. Ryan Gosling is known as, you know, he's one of these heart, heart, uh, uh, Hollywood heartthrobs, right? Like La La Land and uh, The Place Beyond the Pines. Um, I think, personally, his best work comes in a role where he is not a heartthrob. Uh, it's this movie called Lars and the Real Girl. Uh, it is a quirky little film. I won't even go into the plot. All you need to know is that there is a, there's a place uh, in the film where Lars, played by Ryan Gosling, uh, who's a very shy, uh, introverted, quirky guy, um, tragedy has struck in his life. 
and he finds himself just weighed down with grief, struggling to get out of bed. He comes downstairs one morning, and there's these three old women from the town. It's set in this little town, I think in the Midwest someplace, and there's these three old women, and they're just sitting there. They say, oh, hi, Lars. And he says, what are you doing here? He says, oh, well, we brought over some food. Why don't you sit? And he sits down, and no one says anything. One of them's brought some knitting, and they're just kind of sitting. And he says, do you want me to do something? And they say, no, we're just here to sit. That's what you do when tragedy strikes. You come and you sit. Um, well, Job's friends have come to sit. Um, they've sat with him for an entire week uh, of, of silence. Um, as we'll see next week, once they open their mouths, they're not very helpful. But right now, they're just sitting there uh, with their friend uh, who is, is suffering. And who, as we'll see, is, is suffering something that... Um, to him is deeply isolating, even with his friends sitting there. And, and it is him that has to break the silence. Um, one of the things that is important for us to know about suffering and that this passage teaches us, tells us, um, is the deep loneliness of suffering. How when a person suffers, even when they are surrounded by people, um, there is an extent to which um, suffering is, 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 it is something that is isolating. If, if a parent loses a child, for instance, that parent uniquely suffers the loss of that child as that parent, as the father or the mother of that child. And, and, and that particular experience um, is something that, it doesn't mean we shouldn't gather around people and be with them, but we should realize there, there is an isolating um, aspect to suffering. And it's something that we'll see expressed uh, very eloquently uh, and painfully uh, by Job in this chapter. This is possibly the darkest chapter in the entire Bible. Um, I think the only possible rivals to that would be the accounts of the crucifixion uh, and Psalm 88. Um, you know, not even Psalm 22 the, the, the psalm that Jesus takes on his lips, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm that he quotes, even that one ends with a note of confidence uh, and hope in the Lord. Um, psalm 88 ends in darkness. Um, this chapter ends uh, without any light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, there's no expression of hope um, here. Um, it is clearly in the category of lament and I want us to remind I want to remind us of this category that's in the Bible, and that is so important that we know it's there. Um, uh, a large number of the Psalms um, are not Psalms of praise and joy of, or thanksgiving, but are, are Psalms of lament, Psalms of crying out to God uh, from places of suffering, um, places of attack, uh, places um, of of trouble and trial. Um, as we've said before, you know, lament is not the same thing as complaining. Um, what lament is, um, well, the, the quote that was on the front of your bulletins this week, um, Bradley sent this to me. This is from uh, Kelly Capich, who wrote that book that Bradley mentioned last week called Embodied Hope, which is a great book. Um, here's what he says about lament. He says, lament deals with reality. It presupposes a God who hears, who loves, and who is powerful. This is the basis for lament. 
which is a combination of complaint, grief, questions, confusion, desire for rescue, and expectation of divine faithfulness. He says, any attitude that emphasizes hope while ignoring lament comes from a naive and unrealistic optimism that contradicts our actual experiences. But lamenting without hope, on the other hand, is equally unrealistic, a kind of unfaithful cynicism that ignores God's activity and crushes us in its unrelenting despair. Sometimes we find Christians who then avoid both lament and hope, but that's the path of detached stoicism, not Christian hopeful realism. Um, this is in the category of lament, um, and yet um, this is a lament that doesn't have that note of hope in it. Um, Capich reminds us at the end of that quote there that what we're not called to um, is stoicism. Um, we're not called to simply resign ourselves to the view that this is just the way things are. We just live in a world of pain and suffering. It's just the way things are. Um, and we might as well get used to it. We're not, we're not called to just keep a stiff upper lip, right? Not to simply keep calm and carry on in the midst of all things. Um, in, in Stoicism, there's this, there's an impersonal order to the universe, and, and wisdom, a good life, consists in resigning yourself to that order, submitting yourself to it, um, being rightly related to this, this order, which sounds a little bit like the definition of wisdom that Bradley offered a few weeks ago when we looked at Job 28, right? Let me remind you that that definition of wisdom was this. He said, uh, the realization of and right relation to the realities that govern creation. That would be like Stoicism, except that for us, the realities that govern creation are not some impersonal order that just is the way it is. For us, what governs creation is a person. What governs creation is a god who knows us, who wants to be known, a God who is love, who loves us, who wants us uh, to love him, and who wants us, in the midst of pain and suffering, to cry out, uh, to call out to him, to lament. I think that we can be grateful, we can be very grateful, that there is at least one chapter in the Bible, two if you count Psalm 88 and this chapter, where there is lament that doesn't have a light at the end of the tunnel in it. Um, and the reason is that I think that here we see God's word giving full expression, full recognition, full acknowledgement to those times when we grieve that deeply, when we're in the depths of despair and when we can't honestly say, yes, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. We've all been there at some point or another. We've all been at those places where it's not helpful for someone to remind us that we should have hope, but where we really just need someone to sit for a moment and to know us in the midst of our grief. This chapter tells us that God knows us there, that God sees us there. Um, I was absent from the prayer meeting a couple weeks ago 
um, when Psalm 88 was, was read. When, when Bradley told me about it afterwards, he said it was amazing. God was so gracious that Psalm 88 was read on a morning when there were people who were dealing with a very significant grief something that we could pray through uh, together in light of that psalm. And, and I know if you were at that prayer meeting, I, I don't think you went home feeling that everything was okay. Um, but I hope that you went home knowing that you were seen and knowing that you were heard and knowing that you were known by God in the midst of that grief. And I, I hope that's what we all leave today, knowing uh, that God sees and hears us, that he knows. It is good that this chapter is here. Um, what, what would it be like? What, what would it do to us if Job had ended um, with the passage we read last week, right? At, at chapter 2, verse 10. You remember, at the end of, of the passage last week, Job's wife um, encourages him to curse God and die. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That actually would, it would make sense to end the story there. It would be a story that would have a coherent arc to it, right? You, you would have this man, Job, presented to you. He's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil. Satan comes and challenges God. And says, you know, this is only because of how well you've taken care of him, but strike him down and watch him curse you to his face. And God permits him to do it, and we would have gotten to that point at the end of 2 verse 10, and we would have seen Job having lost everything, having lost even his health, refusing to curse God. And that could be the end of the story. There, Satan proved wrong. But we would be left with a model for suffering that would tell us that faithfulness in suffering always looks like a firm, unwavering faith, a firm, unwavering certainty that everything is going to be all right, that God is in the right, that never gives full expression to the depths of despair. It's good that chapter 3 is here. It's good that the rest of this book is here because we get to see that, in fact, Job goes there, that Job goes all the way into the depths of despair. And, and remember, this is a man who has been described as blameless, as upright, who fears God and turns away from evil, who is wise, right? He's vindicated at the beginning of the book, both by the narrator and by God himself, and he'll be vindicated at the end. Um, there will be a little bit of rebuke in what God says to him, but it's not about this. It's not about this chapter. Um, Job will continue to be vindicated as one who fears the Lord. We have said that the fear of the Lord is an awe-filled orientation towards God in all aspects of life that moves us towards obedience. It is good that this chapter is here so that we can see that even one who is upright and faithful and fears God can experience this kind of grief and suffering and can speak these kinds of words. And these are obedient words. These are not the words of one 
whose faith isn't real. These are not the words of one who needs to wonder whether he has any faith at all. Job goes here. It is good that he does because he meets us when we're at this place. Um, Job begins his lament by cursing the day of his birth. And this is the first place um, there in verse 1. It's the first place in the book of Job where the word curse has been used, and it's actually the word curse. Um, every other place to this point where uh, Satan has said, watch, he'll curse you to your face, or where Job's wife has said, curse God and die, it was always actually the word bless. Um, and it's being used euphemistically. You know, the thought is possibly that the scribes that wrote this weren't willing to actually write the words curse God. And so instead they said bless God and, and figured you'll know what we mean. Um, it's a euphemism. Here, for the first time, the word curse um, is actually used. Uh, Job curses his day, the day of his birth. And you have to remember that um, the day that calamity struck and that his children were killed uh, would have been one of their birthdays. Because remember, the days that they used to get together for these feasts was always on their birthdays. You have to wonder as you read this passage whether Job isn't in some ways thinking about his, his children, um, thinking of exactly what he has lost. He curses the day um, of, of, of his birth here. And then he goes beyond that, not just the day of his birth. He goes nine months back before that and curses the day of his conception. You know, the day of his birth, the day of his conception, these would both have been days, you know, with some measure of joy. Um, joy at, at a birth. Um, marital intimacy between a man and a woman. Um, and, and here, in cursing these day, days, Job is, is giving articulation to that, that terrible power that loss and suffering can have in our lives, where at times we lose something, and it, it has this way of working its way backwards into our memories, where the moments of joy become painful to remember, because they're the ones that remind us of exactly what we've lost. Um, Job's language here, it, it, it gives you the sense of calling for the, the undoing of creation, right? Instead of light, he wants darkness. Instead of order, he wants chaos. Um, he wants those that curse the day and call Leviathan, this sea monster that we'll meet again um, in, in the book. Um, he, is, he is truly here alone and truly without hope. He's only able to look backwards, in light of what he's lost. At the moment, he, he, he has no capacity to look ahead, uh, to look forward. He's not, he's not in that place. Um, it's good for us to remember sometimes that when we come to the side of one who is suffering, we don't need to be too quick to call them to look ahead. But sometimes the grief is too deep that the person isn't ready to be able to look up and to look ahead. Um, we need to recognize that 
that can sometimes exacerbate the suffering by suggesting that what was lost wasn't really all that valuable. Suggesting that you really ought to be able to move on from this. Um, but we know from Scripture that God does not treat our sufferings in that way. Um, he, he does not underestimate the weight. Um, he doesn't treat our losses as though they're not really that bad. Bradley reminded us of, of this last week, Psalm 56. David says to God, he says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? It is amazing that the God of the universe knows our sufferings that intimately, as though to catch every tear in a bottle and store it up because it's precious to him, because you're precious to him. In verses 11 to 19, Job in some ways gets even darker. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? He says in verse 16, Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? It is shocking that he goes to that grief. I, I don't think it's, you know, comparing one kind of suffering to another um, might be futile in some sense, but I, I don't know of another grief uh, that is deeper or that appears more meaningless to us than the loss of a child before it's born. I can't think of another one. It is shocking that he goes to this. I, I have had the opportunity once to sit with a woman uh, and her husband in the hospital um, after they lost their, their child. And what I remember about that was of how long we sat without saying anything. Now, I know eventually we did speak. I know that we read scripture together. I know that we prayed. But I remember sitting for a long time and just weeping together um, and just experiencing together a grief that you can't even put words to, that you can't articulate. Um, it is shocking that Job goes to that and, and, and says, it would be better for me if, if that had been me. And again, I, I can't help but think um, that he's thinking about his own children. Why, why would you give me these children? Why would I experience that joy if, if it was just going to be taken away? Um, He longs for the grave. He longs um, for the rest of the grave. He, he says, you, you know, if I had never been born, um, I would have been at rest. I would have been at that place where, regardless of what kind of life you live, whether it's great or small, slave or master, um, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. You, everyone ends up in the same place, and everyone ends up at rest. But the rest that he's calling for here, this is not... The, the well-earned rest that comes at the end of a satisfying day's work. Um, this, is, this is not the rest that God enters into, that he calls us into. This is not the rest that we enter into in Christ. Um, this, is, this is just purely negative, just nothing. Um, Job's despair here can really accurately be described as nihilistic. 
Um, not because he believes there is nothing, but because he longs for nothing. Uh, it would be better than this, than this pain uh, that, he, that he feels now. Um, he continues uh, in, in the same way uh, through the end of this, of this lament uh, in, in verses 20 to 26. Um, it's interesting that he, he, he talks about himself as a, a man that God has hedged in. Remember, Satan said, you've put a hedge around Job. But for Satan, the hedge was protecting Job, right? Now Job feels that same hedge as being constraining, that he's hemmed in. There's no way to escape. Um, he asks, why give light to one who's just in misery? Why give life to one who's only going to suffer? He says, the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Um, I think it's good for us to grapple with the fact, as, we, as we've been saying, that the story of Job points out our exposure. Every one of us has something uh, that, we, that we dread. Every one of us can think of something that we would lose um, that would be as, as painful as this. And, and Job is saying not simply that he fears the thing that he dreads, but it has come. The thing that he least wanted to happen, the thing that he dread, uh, has now uh, landed on this. And last time we talked about that, I asked the question, so in light of that, in light of our exposure to something that we dread, uh, fearing the the, the, some, some great loss, what do we do with that? Where do we go? Um, I ask the question, do we, when we feel exposed, quickly run to cover our exposure, to find some way of our own making, of our own devising, um, of covering up that exposure and protecting ourselves and guarding against the thing that we dread? Or can we, feeling most poignantly that exposure, can we go directly to God and lift that up to him? Um, I, I, have been, I have been saying that this is a lament um, where there's no light at the end of the tunnel, where there's no hope expressed. But the one thing that is hopeful about this lament is the fact that it is being spoken at all. That Job, having suffered what he most dreads, is giving words to that is crying out, is acknowledging that there is someone. And, and he, will go on, he will go on doing that. Um, the, the, most, the thing he says the most emphatically throughout the rest of this book is, um, there is a God in heaven, and I want to see him. I want to talk to him. I want to hear from him. Um, Job knows that there is someone hearing these words. He has no hope to express, but he has one to direct this lament to. Um, it is good that these words are here for us. Um, Job takes his exposure and his suffering to lament. Um, and he wouldn't be the last one to do that. There would be another one uh, who, would, who would cry out uh, in, in suffering. Um, 
this chapter reminds us that we are not alone. Not only because it reminds us that God sees us and he hears us, he remembers and he knows, but also because we see Jesus. Because we see that there would be another uh, man of suffering, acquainted with sorrow. Uh, another one um, who, in the moment of his suffering, would have three friends come around him and not be terribly helpful. Um, Jesus has united himself to all of our humanity. When we say that Jesus is fully human and fully God, um, he has taken to himself all of humanity. And that means that he has taken to himself this. He has taken to himself this kind of despair. He knows. Um, he has experienced this. It, it, it's, nothing is clearer from the Gospels that Jesus was not a stoic. Um, Jesus did not keep a stiff upper lip um, in the face of unrighteousness or injustice. Uh, he did not keep a stiff upper lip in the face of death. He wept at the grave of his friend um, moments before he would raise him from that grave. He still wept um, at the wrongness of it. This imposter, death, that Paul calls the last enemy, the one that Jesus came to defeat. Not by means of human power, but by swallowing it from the inside, by submitting to it. Jesus entered even into this dark night of the soul. Um, Job says at the end of this lament, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Um, it's in John 12 that Jesus says almost the same words, now is my soul troubled. But remember what he said next. Um, he said, but what, what will I say? Deliver me from this hour? It's for this hour that I have come. Jesus was not just thrust into um, suffering uh, as, a, as a victim, as a pawn. Jesus chose it. Jesus, the one who Paul tells us was equal with God, but he humbled himself. He lowered himself. He took our humanity to himself and was found in the form of a servant, of a slave, and submitted himself to death, even to death on a cross. Um, I said at the beginning that there is a, an aspect of suffering that is isolating, that when we suffer, in one degree or another, we suffer alone, um, because no one can suffer exactly the way that we do um, in that minute. But, but if you think about it, every one of us uniquely, in a unique way, bears the image of God. It's one image, and yet we all bear that image in different ways uh, because of the richness of, of who he is, that it takes all of us uh, to, to bear that image. And everything that we love and everything that we could lose in, in, a, in a different way, it doesn't bear his image the way that a human being does, um, unless you are, of course, talking about a child. Um, but everything that is good, everything that we could lose, in some way points to him. Um, one of the things that's isolating about suffering is that 
all of us are unique and the things that we lose are unique and our relationships to them are unique and so there's no way for each of us to, to enter into that. But, but if all those things are pointing to God, the one thing that could be lost that would in some way encompass all of it would be the loss of God himself. And that is the one thing that no human being who seeks after God, who calls out, my God, my God, uh, no human being who cries out for help has ever lost the presence of the Father, with one exception, with the exception of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the only one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. Um, he suffered that loss, a loss that we deserved, a loss which was the just penalty for our sin, which put him on the cross. But he suffered that loss in our place so that we would never suffer it. And one thing that that means is that Jesus knows our suffering in a way that no other human being can. That when we suffer, even in the depths of despair, like what Job is expressing in Job 3, we are really not alone. That we are united to a Savior who knows who sees us, who hears us, who remembers us, who knows. One of the commentators that I've been reading is a, a British pastor named Christopher Ashe. And he quotes a theologian talking about this. He says this, he says, Suffering encloses a man in solitude. Between Job and his friends, an abyss was cleft. They regarded him with astonishment as a strange being, but they could no longer get to him. Only Jesus could cross this abyss, descend into the abyss of misery, plunge into the deepest hell. It is good that this chapter is here to remind us that we're not alone. Um, let me encourage us with one thing before we go um, to this meal. Um, how should we live in light of this? Um, what should our attitude towards suffering be? Um, if we can be comforted to know that in our suffering, Jesus is with us, let's also be reminded that when there are others who are suffering in our midst, Jesus is with them, and we should want to be with our Lord. We are united to him. We are his people. He's given us his name. Let's go with him. Let's be with those in our midst uh, who are in the midst of suffering. Um, sometimes that's going to look like just sitting because there's not that much that we have to say. But in doing so, we do bear witness to the hope of the resurrection. We bear witness to a God who chose to taste our suffering so that we could taste and could see that he's good the way we do every week when we come to this table.